0: Let's get started, though, with Silicon Valley stars long promoting their vision of a future tech utopia, whether that's on Earth or elsewhere. Faced with a global climate crisis, governments and corporations are increasingly turning to technological solutions, like, of course, the electric car, amongst others. But is tech the answer and can it really save us from ourselves? With us now, Paris Marx, a Canadian tech critic and host of the award-winning podcast, Tech Won't Save Us. There's a clue there, isn't there? Uh, they're in New Zealand and giving a talk in Auckland this Sunday. Kia ora, good morning. Thanks for being with us, Paris. Good morning, Susie. Great to join you. Um, tech Won't Save Us is the name of your podcast. So that's it done and dusted then, isn't it?
1: <laughs> I guess so, right? Right. Um- I think the thing with the podcast is, you know, it's made to be provocative, of course. Uh, you know, that's what gets people to, to tune in and, and give it a listen. Um, but I think when I say tech, it's not that, you know, I hate all technology. It's looking specifically at the way that tech has been designed and approached for the past, you know, little while in particular, um, and questioning whether that is the right way to be approaching the development of technology to actually serve the broader public, rather than just, you know, the needs of Silicon Valley or a wider tech industry.
0: Okay, so it's not necessarily the tech itself that won't save us it's- perhaps the way that it's applied?
1: Yeah, and the ideas behind it, right? In the sense that, you know, you you were talking about the climate crisis there in the introduction. And it's like, if we are positioning technology as the way that we're going to address this crisis and and technology that might arrive at some point in the future rather than, you know, taking actions that we should be taking today, then that's a really, um, you know, kind of harmful way to approach this technology or to think about the way that it can be implemented um, to, to
0: solve a problem like that uh, that we're dealing with. Perhaps something like EVs are a good way to look at this because this is... Um essentially a model where an electric car replaces a combustion engine car but how f- how much further does that actually get us
1: yeah it gets us some of the way right um i think that the thing with the ev conversation is it can often lack nuance right it's either you're really pro evs and this is the way that we're going to address the problem or you know they have no place in our cities and we shouldn't be adopting these at all and i think the, the real way to think about it is, is you know, much more nuanced in the sense that, yes, they do play an important role in getting us to reduce our emissions. But if the if our approach to reducing transportation emissions is just to switch everyone who drives a regular kind of petrol car, or diesel car to um, an electric car, that's only going to get us, you know, some of the way there. And we need to be thinking about, you know, much bigger kind of transformations, um, if we actually want to both, you know, address the problem that that you know, cars cause for climate change in in terms of the emissions that come from them, but also the many other problems that people recognise we have in our transportation system, whether it's the time we're spent stuck in traffic or the people who die on our roads and things like that, right? Mm. That requires much bigger interventions to invest in public transit, to invest in cycling infrastructure, to give people other options, rather than just saying you need to take a car to get anywhere.
0: Mm. I guess as well, if you look at the electric car, as you say, it only gets us so far. And... There are still uh, emissions or um, sort of an environmental price to pay, if you like, even if you do get electric cars because of their production, because of some of the things that they contain. And then, you know, at that point, we're not even talking about some of the labour conditions of the people who mine, for example, the, the lithium that's in the battery.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like when it comes to the um, emissions that come from electric cars, some people often point to, oh, what if it's charged with power that's made by coal produce, production or something like that, right? And and certainly, you know, that's an issue. But even if that's the case, you're still having a lower kind of emissions profile in the vehicle than if you're driving a car that's powered by, you know, petrol or diesel or something, right? But I think the bigger thing is when we look into the production of it, and that is because there's these massive batteries in these vehicles that we've been building, they require a lot lot. lot of minerals to go into them. And that means that a lot of things need to be mined in order to build those things, right? And um, that has a lot of consequences in many parts of the world where these minerals are mined, whether it's the lithium from Australia or South America, you know, the cobalt that comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, of course, where there's not only environmental issues, but issues of child labor. Um, I believe it's nickel that comes from Indonesia that is causing a lot of environmental and, and harm to workers and communities there. So these are stories that are happening all over the world. And as we make this kind of transition where we're planning to electrify everything, that has a really large um, kind of resource footprint. And a lot of mining companies are looking to expand mines around the world as a result. Um, So there's that kind of hidden environmental consequence that comes with it.
0: And our vehicles are getting bigger and heavier as well. And so that means you require more of this to have a battery that's going to be able to meaningfully get your larger, heavier vehicle further down the road. And that, of course, also comes with... um, issues around safety.
1: Definitely. You know, I I certainly don't know the stats in New Zealand, but of course what we've been seeing in the United States is that um, as these vehicles have been getting larger, and of course the United States is kind of leading the world in the charge to adopt SUVs and and these larger and larger trucks, um, is that, you know, the number of pedestrians in particular that are dying on roads has been significantly increasing over the past decade um, and are back to levels that they haven't seen since the 1990s. Um, And, you know, now when you seek to electrify all of that, you have the issue where electric vehicles are typically heavier than traditional vehicles because they do have these large batteries in them. Um, And that also brings, you know, the question of whether as we're making this transition, it makes sense to try to be replacing, you know, the types of vehicles that we have now one-to-one with an electric vehicle that we hope will do the exact same thing. Because really, when we look at it, and I think that as we're having more and more people adopt electric vehicles, more and more people are finding this where, you know, it's not really a one-to-one replacement. The way that, um, you know, a gas or diesel vehicle works is a bit different from how an electric vehicle works in the sense that, you know, you can always quickly refuel, um, you know, your traditional vehicle and keep going. Uh, You know, at a gas station, it doesn't take very long. Um, Whereas if you have this electric vehicle and you have to stop to kind of charge it up and it's going to take a while – range is actually something where if you, if you pay more money for your electric vehicle, you're going to get better range, whereas with a traditional vehicle, that's kind of a standardised thing. It doesn't matter if you buy a used car for really cheap or some expensive luxury vehicle, you know, you're still going to get a similar expectation on range out of that.
0: And so this is the difficulty. Um, you know, the, the car is king and gets an awful lot of space, not just to, you know, where we keep the things, but also driving the things. It takes a chunk of money, Um, that is then wrapped up uh, and not in the pocket of the individual. So what is the answer? How do we move around, especially in our, you know, fast paced world?
1: Yeah, it's tough, right? Because it does require really difficult decisions to move us forward. And I think that there are both challenges there, but also opportunities. So, Obviously, electric vehicles are part of the solution because in a society like New Zealand or the society that I'm from in Canada, um, you know, people are going to still be driving cars uh, in the in the coming decades. You know, that is not going away. And so switching to electric vehicles still makes sense. We need to think about the proper infrastructures in order to enable that. But it can't, as I was saying, it can't just be kind of replacing everyone who drives a car right now with an electric vehicle. Um, I think that we do need to be thinking bigger in the sense of how do we build our communities so that we don't need to drive as much. How do we make investments in public transportation, um, in cycling infrastructure, in these alternatives for people so that, you know, if you don't want to take a car – you know, you have other options in order to get around your cities and that's both more sustainable but it also starts to address some of these other problems that I've been talking about in the transportation system where, you know, you get people out of cars, there's less of a risk of people dying on the roads and, of course, you know, for people who do still want to drive, if other people are taking transit or cycling, that gets cars off the road and reduces traffic as well, right? Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of other benefits that come of it.
0: Uh, Elon Musk has proposed the Hyperloop, which... You can probably describe it better than I can, but it's basically you you get shot in a tube from one place to another.
1: Yeah, basically. Um, it, yeah, it's like pods in a, in a vacuum tube. And the idea is that they're going to go like 1000 kilometers an hour, um, or something like that. Uh, he proposed this idea back in 2013, um, as an alternative, basically to high speed rail. Um, because of course, at the time, he was based in California, and California was moving forward with a proposal to build um, a high speed rail line from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And there was a lot of opposition to that from, you know, right wing politicians uh, with the Republican Party. Um, You know, people in the airline industry, people in the automotive industry. Musk, of course, is in the automotive industry. Um, And so he proposed this idea and – he said he had no intention of building it. And, of course, in his biography, his first biography that was published in 2015, the author said that, um, you know, Musk said as much to him in emails and phone calls that he wanted to see the high-speed rail plan uh, canceled. Uh, and so that is why he proposed this hyperloop. And so with, with Elon Musk, I think you see time and again where he is kind of proposing these um, ideas for the future of transportation that are often really oriented around cars and keeping people in cars so that we're not building public transit and, and things like better rail infrastructure. Structure, um, you know, and so it distracts us from these things that we should be, I think, uh, much more focused on.
0: Because we can't just keep on expanding. We can't produce more and more energy. We just can't do it, can we?
1: It, it's it's difficult, right? Because one of the things that we're starting to see right now is as we are making this transition where, you know, we're trying to electrify more things in society, we're trying to get people to adopt electric cars. Of course, we also have these other trends in the tech industry where they are making kind of um, the technologies that we use more computationally intensive. So just for example, you know, people have certainly heard of the chatbots and ChatGPT and, you know, all these kind of AI tools that are becoming more popular over the past year. Um, but they also use a lot more um, computational infrastructure. And so, so that requires building more data centers. People might be aware that you know, Microsoft and Amazon are looking at building large data centers or, or have been doing so here in New Zealand. Um, and of course, that requires a lot more energy. And there's a discussion now about, of, cor- of course, we're making these investments in renewable energy. And the idea was that they are going to displace the fossil fuel energy um, that we're using at the moment. Um, and, and more and more uh, jurisdictions are finding that actually, because the energy demands are increasing so much, when they bring on these renewables, it's not actually displacing the fossil fuel. And they still need to run both of them next to one another, so you're not getting these, um, you know, savings on emissions that that we kind of expected we would get.
0: And so the future, I guess, of transportation. Um, I mean, I don't. It'd be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of decades. But it doesn't look it's like it's going to be the flying cars that the Jetsons promised us, which I'm a little <laughs> bit sad about.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, unfortunately not.
0: I know, but the way that technology has changed our lives over centuries is pretty well traversed, I guess. But the acceleration over the last few decades has been enormous. So I suppose more broadly, if you look at tech, where is it taking humans?
1: Mm. I, I think it's a bit difficult to say at the moment, right? Because I think we had this real, you know, with the privatization of the internet in the 1990s, and of course, the rollout of digital technologies and the computerization of society that we've seen over the past few decades, there has been this real transformation, right? And, but I feel like we've reached this point where that transformation is kind of, you know, it's kind of like reached its peak, or, or it's struggling to figure out where it goes next. Um, and I think that you feel this challenge within the tech industry as well, where, you know, a couple of years ago, Mark Zuckerberg was trying to get us to adopt the metaverse and, and wear VR headsets. And now Apple has released this Apple Vision Pro and ex- expects us to wear all the time. And like, they're trying to figure out where it's going, but it seems like they're really struggling to figure out kind of what the next frontier with this is. Um, and, and so it's it's a bit hard to say at the moment where, you know, we're going to end up and where the trajectory of things are going. But I think one thing that we can say, um, especially on the climate front, is that, you know, we don't have time to wait um, for for new technologies to be invented or to be innovated or to be rolled out um, because the timeline that we have is so short. So, you know... What we what we have right now is kind of what we need to be using to address this to reduce emissions instead of hoping that, you know, some big breakthroughs are going to come in the future that are going to, uh, you know, kind of be silver bullets and, and help us get to where we need to go.
0: You, What about the influence of there being so much money and so much control, really, that remains in very few hands and, of course, largely in the hands of billionaires?
1: Yeah, this is incredibly difficult, right? And especially in the tech industry. You know, one of the things that really stands out to me is as we have had this kind of digital transformation over the past couple of decades is the idea of what that should look like has really been led by these powerful people in particular in Silicon Valley, but you know, some others um, around the world as well, um, because they have immense power and immense wealth that have come from their success, often in the 1990s, but, but in some cases a bit before that. Um, and so often we don't have this kind of democratic ability to actually decide how – you know, the technologies in our society are going to evolve or going to be used because instead they're deployed by, you know, powerful Silicon Valley figures. And they were just expect to adopt their idea of what the future or what technology should be. Um, and I think that that is actually really problematic because one of the things that we've seen over the past number of decades is these technologies being used against workers to kind of transform the way that people work um, so that, you know, technologies are used to, increasingly surveil them, you know, both at the workplace and and in the broader society as we've had these discussions about all the data that's collected about us online. Um, And of course, we haven't really had the ability to make a choice about that and and whether we are okay with that. Um, And I think that that's a real flaw in the way that we've approached um, technology and the rollout of technology over the past couple of decades.
0: Mm. And because we have approached it the way that we have very much within the setup and, and frame, if you like, of capitalism and because it's people with so much money who are pulling many of the strings, it inevitably means that that is seen, I suppose, or the solutions are seen sitting within that context.
1: Definitely. The the solutions that, um, you know, are presented to problems that we have are solutions that have to turn a profit or have to work in some sense for these larger companies. Right. And again, if we bring it back to, to climate change, the way that it's being approached is that, OK, we need to find a solution to the climate crisis that is also going to make money for private companies. Right. And we're not really able to ask this question of like, okay, but we have this existential crisis. We have this limited period of time in which we need to act to cut emissions to avoid kind of the runaway warming that we're already seeing the the effects of as the planet continues to warm. Um, and, you know, we can't really ask and say... But what if this this effort of trying to, trying to make the solution to this problem fit into the box of, you know, a private market solution that is going to generate profits for particular companies? Like, what if we don't have the time to figure that out and we still need to act? Um, and I feel like a lot of our governments have really been unable to or, or unwilling, really, to grapple with that question um, and, you know, the implications and the consequences that come of it if we find that, you know, actually capitalism just isn't properly equipped to deal with this problem at the... Uh, you know, in the, in the amount of time that we have and the scale of the challenge that
0: we face. Mm. Uh, you're listening to Saturday Morning on RNZ National. Susie Ferguson with you. And my guest is Paris Marx, Canadian tech critic and in Aotearoa uh, for a series of talks, indeed a talk tomorrow in Auckland. Um, Paris, tell me a bit about Tess Creel.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so this is this um, acronym that was put together by Emil Torres and Timnit Gebru, um, you know, who are, who are both operating in the United States. And it's, it's kind of like an acronym that refers to this evolution of the ideologies of the tech industry. So starting with transhumanism, this idea that we're going to kind of merge man and machine. Um, and, and that can both mean, you know, we can use technology like enhance um, the human being or, you know, kind of eventually replace the human being with kind of a, a computerized or robotic version of ourselves. Uh, going all the way to kind of effective altruism, which is something that listeners may have heard of over the past year, in particular with the downfall of the crypto company FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, who was um, recently found guilty of um, fraud, I believe it was, um, and will be going to prison for quite a long time in the United States. And lastly, long-termism, which is this idea that, um, you know, we, we don't just need to think long-term in terms of what our actions today are going to mean for people in the next few decades or next century or something, but what it's going to mean a million years from now and that really changes the calculus um, of what we think the decisions we should make today would be, and I would argue in a way that benefits these billionaires that we've been talking about.
0: So, are we going to colonize space and merge with machines and live in a utopia that's born from AI? <laughs>
1: I'm I'm certainly skeptical. Um, I. I You know, listen, I won't say that in 10,000 years from now, we won't have uh, moved into the stars or something. But I think on the timelines that we're thinking about, especially with the challenges that we're facing today, whether it's the climate crisis or, you know, things like affordability, housing, poverty, um, you know, hunger, all all these issues that um, we're dealing with as a society, um, I don't think that colonizing you know, Mars or something really takes precedence over any of that. And and kind of the argument of people who, um, you know, ascribe to these, these ideas, um, like long-termism, they would argue that, um, you know, the value of a life a million years from now is similar to a value of a life today. And if their investment in getting us to colonize Mars can mean that, you know, the human species is going to live longer or something like that, then that is, uh, you know, a much more ethical or moral decision than actually spending you know, the wealth and, and the money and the resources that we have today to address these much more uh, present day problems, rather than thinking about things that might happen a very long time from now.
0: Generationally, what have you noticed about um, how different people think about this? You know, Mm -hmm. I'm a Generation Xer. So I guess I I come at it from a certain standpoint. uh, And I'm a Pakeha, you know, New Zealand European. So I come at it from a certain standpoint. But what about millennials? What about Gen Z? How are they approaching um you know the the world that they're being given? Yeah, that's a
1: really good question. And I think it's hard to tell to a certain degree because I think it's hard to, to generalize generationally in the sense that, you know, just like anyone else, I think that millennials and Gen Z have very differing opinions on what this is going to mean. Like, I think that we can see that, um, you know, younger people have certainly adopted um, all of these technologies because they're around us and it's the way that you communicate now and it's the way that you make yourself heard and it's just the expectation that you're going to be on these social media platforms and all this kind of stuff, right? But I think that there's also a, a profound kind of... Discomfort with the degree of kind of collection of data that exists on us, with the degree to which um, these technology companies, at the same time as we use them, do kind of control the way that we communicate with one another. And I think that there has been a desire, um, you know, at least among some uh, younger people now, to you know, try to take a step back from that to try to think about other ways of, of connecting. You know, we see a lot of young people using like Snapchat, for example, instead of um, Facebook, because it's a more kind of private um, way of communicating with the people that you know. Um, and so I think that there are these transformations, but I think that we're also in a moment of a wider transformation within the tech industry and with social media in particular, with, uh, you know, kind of people moving away from Facebook, with everything that's been happening with Twitter, um, and the kind of disintegration with that platform and the rise mm. of TikTok. So there's a big kind of shakeout happening there. And it's hard to know exactly what how how that kind of plays out in the next few years as well.
0: And how do you see some of the risks, I suppose, to this tipping point almost that it feels that we're at? Because I don't know, maybe it always feels like you're at a tipping point. But it certainly has that sense that, you know, things need to happen quite soon. Otherwise, certain scenarios are going to become unrecoverable.
1: Yeah, I I think it definitely does feel like that, right? In the sense that, you know, if we think about climate, like, you know, we, we can see the warming increasing every single year. We can see that for the most part, many of um, the industrialized countries in the world are not cutting their emissions. And of course, there's a lot of countries that are, you know, trying to develop and kind of catch up to the standard of living that we have. Um, and of course, we understand that their emissions are going to rise as a result. So global emissions are still rising. Um, and so that means that, you know, there does need to be action, but the action doesn't really seem to be being taken. And at the same time, it feels like a lot of the people who hold the reins of power, whether that is in government or outside of government like these powerful people in the tech industry are not so concerned with these more material problems that a lot of people are dealing with um, you know whether it is you know challenging things like affordability and housing and things like that or bigger issues that um, can feel a bit more distant like the climate crisis um, and so I think that we're in this moment where there's this real unfortunately, this real backlash to this desire to do something about it, where, you know, we see powerful people in the tech industry, like Elon Musk, for example, increasingly, you know, becoming very reactionary and moving toward the right and feeling that they are kind of personally under attack, even though they're some of the most powerful and wealthy people in the world. Um, And meanwhile, we have a lot of governments that are being elected, at least across across kind of Europe, North America, um, you know, Australia, New Zealand, that are looking to kind of pair back um, previous commitments on climate and, and actions that, that could have been taken. Um, and that's leading us in a very, I think, concerning direction.
0: Interesting stuff. Uh, thank you very much for your time on Saturday morning. Paris Marks there, a Canadian tech critic, uh, doing a talk in Auckland tomorrow. You can find out some more details about that at Toha Toha. Dot org toha toha.org.nz, or indeed on our webpage rnz.co.nz slash Saturday.